0: answer that question does god have enemies well if you're one kind of muslim you might answer that question by saying yes god has enemies and they're the americans and israelis if you're a hindu nationalist you might say yes of course god has enemies they're the muslims and the christians and if you're like most new zealanders today you just look at me like i have three heads you say, what a stupid, absurd question. Does God have enemies? Most New Zealanders think that's a rather strange question. God? Have enemies? After all, the whole idea to a lot of people, you know, of God having enemies just seems to go against the whole definition of God. Having enemies is not something God does, does He? Some people would say, Yeah, certainly people have enemies, but God, God, no, no, God doesn't have enemies. I mean, the idea of God hating just sounds very foreign and alien to many people today. Besides, if you think about it, we can scarcely imagine what it would be like to be the enemy of the Almighty One. Well, if some of these thoughts are going through your minds and other questions and and things going through your mind well the good news is as usual the bible has some very important answers for us particularly the book of obadiah will help us to answer the question does god have enemies the shortest book in the old testament speaks to a time like our own i hope you're not one of these people who who ignore the old testament particularly the prophets and say, uh, well, you know, that has nothing to do with me. That was a long time ago. May I remind you what Second Timothy says, that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable? You see, Obadiah proclaimed a vision from the sovereign God to a people who knew no theology. He proclaimed this prophes- these prophecies to this-, this group of people. They had really no place for the true God in their lives. Obadiah's audience made no pretense of acknowledging God. In other words, he spoke to a society much like our own, because frankly, most of our society today, well, you, you can look it up yourself. Go to the New Zealand statistics. Over 40% of New Zealand checked the non-religious box in the last census. That was the non-religious group. By far the largest group. So Obadiah is speaking to our society today. Our society doesn't care about theology. They have no place for the true God in their lives. And so in this little book, God teaches us about who he is, who his friends are, who his enemies are. And today we're going to see how Obadiah prophesied, to, he prophesied God's judgment on a particular group of people. And in this case, it was the nation of Edom. These people lived just to the southeast of Judah. Judah was, remember, the southern kingdom. Uh, this is taking place during the time after the, uh, Israel had divided. The, the northern kingdom had already been conquered by the Assyrians. And as far as we know, this is during the time around, the time when the Babylonians uh, have destroyed Jerusalem, apparently, and, and they're just spreading their power in that region. So the first question, of course, we want to look at today is who are God's enemies? And I'm glad you asked that question because the first couple verses of Obadiah helped to answer this question. We see, first of all, that the proud are God's enemies. The proud are God's enemies. Look at the first four verses of Obadiah. These are the words of the living God. Here's what he says. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let, us, uh, and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. You can see that these people were proud. Now some historical background here is in order. We need to understand, first of all, that Obadiah appears to have been written sometime after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And, of course, they fell to the Babylonians. The Babylonians invaded, ransacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, destroyed the walls. And amid this terrible plight among God's people, their next-door neighbors to the southeast, the Edomites, did nothing to help them. They should have, because the Edomites, if you remember from the book of Genesis were actually the descendants of Jacob's brother, Esau. Esau is the father of the Edomites. Remember, Esau was the brother of Jacob. They, they should have helped one another. But sad, sadly, Edom did not. Now, nothing in the book suggests that Edom was in a low state when Obadiah delivered this message. Quite the contrary. In fact, God's promise to Edom To make them small among the nations, you see that in verse 2, suggests that they regarded themselves somewhat highly among the nations. In other words, they were proud. They were proud. They were proud people. The book shows us that the people of Edom were not aware of any coming judgment. In fact, they had, if you will, they had sucked up to the Babylonians, thinking, well, you you know, if we make them our friends, then they'll leave us alone. And I've given you a picture here. Some of you may have uh, know some things about Petra. Petra is in that region of Edom. You get an idea of, of what they what it looks like in Edom. Uh, very very harsh, rugged territory. Be quite hard to invade. Uh, they lived in a naturally impregnable position. Uh, they they would live amongst the mountaintops and cities that could only be reached by narrow, winding passages like like the one that leads to Petra. So unlike Judah, the the times were good. The Babylonians hadn't attacked them. Uh, that's a good thing for us to be reminded of. So my friend, please understand that God made you accountable to him. You were accountable to the Creator. And there is a day coming when you will give account to your creator. But therefore we need to be reminded that he is our only security. Now look what God told this self-sufficient nation in verse 3. He says, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. You, you, who, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? So Edom was a small nation, but it was, Situated in a very strategic place, much like uh, Switzerland is in Europe. If you've ever traveled or seen pictures of Switzerland, there's you know, a lot of tall mountains and uh, places that are easy to defend there. Uh, they were, you know, Edom was in this supposedly impenetrable uh, region of rocky heights and passes. And their hearts were well symbolized by the geography that's described there. Their hearts were high, hard, certain, and proud. But that is where they made their fatal error. Did did you notice God told them, you shall be greatly despised? Why? The pride of your heart has deceived you. They were deceived by their proud hearts, thinking, because I live in this place, well, then I'm okay, I'm secure. Here is the reality, though. God recognizes no earthly power or material advantage that can withstand the course of his judgment. There is no place that is so-called impregnable to God. We cannot hide from God. There is no place where his eye does not see and his hand does not reach. And once he decides to bring down a proud people, he will. There's many examples of that in the Bible. (laughs) Many examples. Think of Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Rome, just to name a few. It is sad, but we like to point our fingers often at people in the Bible and say, Oh, man, you're fools. Why would you do that? But we do the same thing. We often put our trust in things that don't last, just like the Edomites did. We give obsessive attention to our appearance. Think about just how foolish it is to give obsessive attention attention to your appearance. It's not going to last, is it? I'm not saying you should ignore your appearance, okay? But we, we, we give obsessive attention to these things that don't last, like our appearances, or our bodies, our possessions, our accomplishments, our jobs, and even our friendships. None of those things will last. We trust in them to bring peace and security. You know, we, we think, well, you know, if you know, if I look a little better, if I get a Botox injection, well, that'll, you know, that'll help. Or if I get a, you know, ladies, you, you know, I'll go and get a permanent, which isn't permanent. They ought to call them temporaries. You know, or if I, you know, I go and work out, lose a few, you know, inches and, 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 and kilos, well, you know, that'll be good, and then we gain it back. You know, isn't that the way it goes? Nothing lasts. We trust in these things to bring peace and security. But what will you do if they don't? What will you do when they don't? What if your employer lays you off work? What if your wealth crumbles during a recession? You're going to do what some people did in New York City, jump out of a 20-story building? Is that the answer? What if your health deteriorates? What if a relationship disappoints you? Then what will you trust in? Well, my friend, do you know that pride is our greatest enemy? Pride is our greatest enemy. It's what caused Lucifer to fall from heaven. It is what took Adam and Eve into sin. And we, see, we have seen that Edom was proud. God says so. But what exactly had Edom done? Is there anything in this little book that shows us their pride? How had their pride shown itself? Those are the questions that the next verses answer. So who are God's enemies? Number one. The proud are God's enemies. Number two, those who oppose God's people are his enemies. In verse 5, God shows that Edom's pride had led, it had led that particular nation into heinous sin against Judah. And, and God even compares their heinous sin, uh, and he compares it to the actions of robbers and grape pickers. Look what verse 5 says. If thieves had come to you... If robbers by night, oh how you will be cut off! Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Kind of a rhetorical questions there. What, what's the point, though? Okay, we need to keep this point in mind: that neither grape or, or, or grape pickers nor robbers will take everything. Most of the time, if you've ever had someone break into your house and steal from you, they don't take everything, right? They just take the things that they want, the things they think are of value, right? Like your television and your computer and any money they can find or those sort of things, right? Most of the time, they're not going to go and take your socks, right? That's usually not the case. And neither do grape pickers usually pick everything. They're just picking the stuff that's ready to be picked. They take only what they need and only that. But Edom had been merciless in its treatment of Judah. That's the point that God's making here. God is saying that the feeling of injustice that victims of robbery can feel does not adequately portray the the injustice that the Edomites had committed against the Israelites. Sure, when someone breaks into our house and steals from us, there's a bit of victimization going on there. We feel like we've been violated, right? These people have come in unannounced, without our permission, and taken from us. Also, the picture of what a robber does was inadequate here for portraying the loss God would bring upon Edom. Look at verse 6. God says in verse 6, Oh, how Esau shall be searched out how this hidden or how his hidden treasures shall be sought after no investments were secure no dwellings were safe they may have thought they were safe but they weren't all protections and precautions would be useless why because god would use the babylonians to conquer and plunder them and he would use others as well and because God would use the Babylonians to conquer and plunder, God was accomplishing his purposes. My friend, it is important to remember that with God's protection, there's safety amongst the dangers that we live in. However, without God's protection, all other protections are are utterly worthless. They're finally worthless. And you know, you, you can go and you can try to do everything to, you can to protect yourself. You can try to have a huge bank account. You can try to have, you know, security systems in your house. You can, you know, try to to be a vegetarian thinking, I'll be a vegetarian and that won't, you know, that'll keep me from getting cancer. You can do all these things, but if God wants you to have cancer, you're going to get cancer. If God wants somebody to break into your house, someone's going to break into your house. Okay, do you get the point? God's going to accomplish his purposes. So who better to bring God's judgment than the very ones Edom had relied upon in the first place? Here they are, they're relying upon Babylon, and Babylon was the one who attacked them. So look at verse 7, the first part of verse 7. Because it says here in verse, the first part of verse 7, All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you talking about Babylon there. Babylon is the one who did that. The Edomites placed such an undue trust in the Babylonians, and and now their protectors were the ones who became their destroyers. Look at the last part of verse 7. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. E. (laughs) They deceived them, in other words. God promises that the proud will be humbled. And in fact, the New Testament said that God is opposed to the proud. And he abhors the nation who treats other people as if they don't belong to him. You know, some people think, you know, these people, you know, they don't belong to anyone. They're not made in God's image. There is no creator, so I can do to them however I wish. And maybe they had that idea. These were God's own special people. And Edom abused them, and, and, and even killed some of them, and stole from them. And God makes this point, by the way, throughout the Bible, that you cannot just go and abuse his people however you wish. They belong to him. For example, do you remember what the risen Christ said to Saul, who was a man who was persecuting Christians in Acts chapter 9? Acts chapter 9 Jesus Christ spoke these words to Saul. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Do you understand Jesus Christ was saying to Saul, who was persecuting Christians, that that Christ was identifying himself with his people, the Christians. That's the point. Christ identifies himself so closely with, with his people, that he refers to them as himself. He takes it seriously when his people are abused and persecuted and slandered. And by the way, actions against God's people are actions against God himself. He doesn't take that lightly. Now in the next verse, God restates his promise to destroy Edom, but he does it in much more explicit terms. Look at verse 8. God says, Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom? And understanding from the mountains of Esau? So he, he picks on two different groups of people here, right? We, we see that their wise men couldn't save them. Even the the smartest people in their nation had no hope against God's judgment. Well, neither could their Their strong men saved them. The the greatest warriors of the nation had no hope of saving them either. Look at verse 9. Then your mighty men, O Teman. By the way, Teman was the grandson of Esau, referring to the nation of Edom. And and God says, "Shall uh, Teman shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. So even the mighty men had no hope of saving them. (coughs) Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Well, look at verse 10. The answer is found in the first part of verse 10, because it says, For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. That's why God brought this judgment against Edom. By the way, uh, God refers to brother Jacob here. He's, he's referring to Edom because Edom, uh, well, it came from Esau. And, and as I said earlier, Esau was the brother of Jacob. So it was something that was totally outrageous for Edom not to offer hospitality to those Israelites who were actually fleeing from the Babylonians. They should have helped their brothers, but instead, what did they do? They did them violence, as it says here. And because of this outrage, look what God says at the end of verse 10. He says, and you shall be cut off forever. In verses 11 through 14, Obadiah explains more fully the nature of Edom's violence against Israel. We can see more fully why God decided to destroy this nation and never to bring it up again. Now, part of their violence was simply to comply with the violence of others. If you look at verses 11 and 12, which say this, In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. What is even worse, we we see in this book that the Edomites joined with their brothers' destroyers. As if it was bad enough for some of them maybe to just kind of sit back and say, well, I'm not getting involved. No, it was worse than that. Some of them got involved in, 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 in stealing and plundering and even killing and, and, and pointing out to the Babylonians where some of the Israelites were hiding. That was outrageous. If you look at uh, verse 13, we see the Edomites joined in with their brother's destroyer. Look at verse 13. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction, in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. In other words, they're ripping their brothers off. Edom took advantage of the situation, and they exploited Judah's weakness, just like looters doing down in Christchurch, you know, after the earthquake. That, isn't that a horrible thing? I mean, you think about that, as if it's, you know, talk about kicking a dead horse. I mean, after the earthquake, you got looters going around ripping people off and taking advantage of of their brothers and sisters. And that's exactly what had happened here. They were plundering the helpless. The Edomites had also been ruthless in their sin because, look at verse 14, You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. Edom waited here at the crossroads for for the Israelites who were fleeing out of Judah. Remember, Edom was southeast of Judah. And when they found survivors, they would hand them over to the Babylonians. Now keep in mind, my friends, this is not a fairy tale. This is not just uh, some story of Grimm's fairy tales here. This is real history. This actually happened. Well, because of Edom's sin, God would bring justice. Look at the first part of verse fifteen: "For the day of the Lord, or, or for the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you." There are many implications of God's justice that we could consider, even from this little book. But let me point to just one, my friends—just one. The promise of divine justice should. Encourage us as Christians. It should encourage us when we personally face unjust suffering. When you go through those times when someone, you know, theoretically stabs you or, or figuratively stabs you in the back and slanders you and says unkind things against you. The promise of divine justice should encourage us. It should encourage us when we face trials and 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 persecution and things that we don't deserve. It should encourage us when we hear of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world who are facing unjust suffering. I get the voice of the Martyrs magazine. (laughs) There's many examples I hear every time I look at that magazine. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world are, are dying for the faith simply for asking questions like, What did Muhammad ever do for me? Well, it's not always going to be this way. That's the good news. <laughs> there is light at the end of the tunnel. God knows and he cares. Furthermore, we can expect that the world will hate and oppose us if we're his people. You know, the New Testament said that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So even as they hated and opposed Jesus Christ himself, Jesus said, you can expect the same. Is the master or is the servant, you know, any different from the master? No. So if you complain about the trials that you've experienced for following Christ, well, then I wonder who it is you thought you were following. (laughs) Jesus said to expect trials and persecution. After all, what was Christ's life like? How can we complain when lesser things happen to us? Suffering and persecution was the way of Christ. And we should expect the same. My friend, do you see that God is sovereign? We see it over and over again. Every book of the Bible shows us that truth, that God reigns supreme over his creation. God uses his enemies as a surgeon uses a scalpel, making a fine cut. But that does not mean that God's enemies are exempt from, from responsibility or punishment yes God used Edom yes God used the Babylonians but their time would come when God would take out his scalpel and remove them they earn his judgment for their wickedness you see that at the end of verse 15 which says your reprisal shall return upon your own head we see the law of sowing and reaping you will reap what you sow In the book of Obadiah, God is a fierce personal enemy to the proud. He is a fierce personal enemy to the opposers of his people, in this case, Edom and Babylon. And because he fiercely loves his people, he's going to stick by his people. And it is God's fierce personal love that brings us to our second question. My friend, here is the second question. Who are God's friends? We see that God has enemies. They are the ones who are proud. They are the ones who oppose his people. And so we would naturally want to know the answer to this question then. Who are God's friends? And in verse 13, we saw that God called the Israelites my people. Yet maybe you might be sitting here thinking, well, aren't all people God's people? Some people think that way, that everybody who's ever been created is part of God's children they're god's people well throughout the bible god displays a special concern for a small group of people whom he refers to as my people this smaller group consists of those by the way to whom god has spoken and to to whom these people have repented of their sins and have accepted god at his word and if this describes you then i have good news for you because you're a part of that small group of people called God's people. If you've done that, if you have heard God spoken to you through, his, through the Bible, if you have repented of your sins and you have accepted God at his word, then you are one of his friends. You are his people. And here in Obadiah, the nation of Israel had fallen under God's judgment, but God wasn't finished with them yet in a reversal of fortunes for Israel and Edom, the Lord speaks in verses 17 and 18 and look what he says but on Mount Zion, that's referring to Jerusalem, but on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, there shall be holiness, the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame but the house of Esau that's Edom, shall be stubble they shall kindle them And devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. So we see a reversal here in fortunes, don't we? The ones who thought they were secure are destroyed. And the ones who were destroyed by the Babylonians will one day find themselves rising. So amid God's word of judgment against Edom, God also spoke words of hope, and that's the way our wonderful God works. We, we see it throughout the, the doom and gloom of the prophets, don't we? God speaks doom and gloom, and then he gives a little bit of light. He gives some hope, some encouragement. Not only would the wicked receive justice, God's people would be restored. Indeed, in these final verses, God promises his people that they will return from exile but not just that, but that they would regain their lost lands. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, these are God's words. He says, The south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowlands shall possess Philistia, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead, and the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites. As far as Zarephath, the captives of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of the south. Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau. Let's stop there. We see who God's friends are. God's friends are the ones whom God speaks to. They are the ones who repent of their sins and accept God's word. Our third question for today is this, who is God? Who is God? Finally, we have to look at that very last phrase of the little book of Obadiah. Look at the last few words here, because it says, In the kingdom shall be the Lord's. and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. In other words, the Lord is king over all nations. And he showed that by the way he treated both Edom and Judah. He's in charge. God's kingdom, by the way, is probably the real message of this little book. God's kingship is the real message. God used Obadiah to show both Edom and Judah that he is the king. Edom thought they were secure, but they weren't. King Nebuchadnezzar thought he was secure, but of course he wasn't. Now, is the fact that God proclaims himself king encouraging to you? Or do you find that a bit alarming? Does it disturb you a little bit in in our modern-day way of thinking? We love democracies. We don't like monarchies. Does it disturb you, or do you find it encouraging that there is one who proclaims himself king? He is supreme. Well, certainly it was encouraging to the Israelites. Yet remember, this vision, by the way, was not primarily to the Israelites. It was primarily to unbelievers. It was primarily to the Edomites, the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. And usually, unbelievers don't like it when God proclaims himself king. They don't even like to think about a creator whom they are going to be held accountable to one day. The reality is God is king, he has a purpose in everything, and you and I must align ourselves with God's purposes. Otherwise, we will find ourselves his enemy. So if you're one of God's people today, meditate on this last verse in Obadiah. It reveals God's purpose for history. And then consider the completeness of God's rule over all life. God completely reigns supreme over his creation. And his reign is certain. He will triumph. His triumph will be complete it, it, it is not complete yet, but there is coming a day when it will be. There is coming a day when every knee will bow to King Jesus. It's coming. Certainly not yet, but it is coming. This is, my friends, what you and I need to know for our lives. That King Jesus is King. He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And there is coming a day when, when justice will reign, righteousness will reign. And we need to remember that God is the great King the Creator and the Judge of the universe, and that He is the Lord of history. He is the one who will bring justice upon His enemies. You may not see it yet, but there is coming a day when it will come. He is the one who is going to bring friendship to sinners like you and like me, if only we will draw near to Him in Jesus Christ. Our last question for today is this, who are you? Who are you? not asking what your name is or what your race is or what your social standing is. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, was Edom destroyed? You know, what, what about them? You, was Edom destroyed? Did, did they get their justice? And the answer is yes, Edom was invaded in the next century by the Arabs. And then it, it suffered continually, wave upon wave of invasion, until the night the, the, the nation of Edom was finally dissolved and, sadly, Edom no longer exists today. What about the Israelites then? Were they restored? Yes, partially. Partially, they were they were restored, and the fuller re- restoration began when Jesus Christ came to this earth some two thousand years ago. He declared that the kingdom of God had begun. And then he ushered many Jews and non-Jews into God's reign over their lives. And the wonderful thing is, you can see that reign in the book of Acts, can't you? Where no longer is there this dividing line between Jews and the Gentiles, but now you can see within one church, little local churches in the book of Acts, you have Jews and Gentiles sitting by one another. They are one. Because they recognize God's reign and rule in their lives. And it's a beautiful thing to see that people who were once divided and who who hated one another now love one another and are brothers and sisters in Christ because of the work and person of Christ. They recognize Christ's kingship over their lives and over their churches. So my question for you is, who are you? Are you an enemy or are you a friend of God? And the Bible teaches that every one of us is God's enemy by nature, You you might be sitting here thinking, well, I'm not an Israelite. I'm, I'm not an Edomite either, so this has nothing to do with me. May I remind you what the New Testament says? That every one of us are God's enemies by choice and by birth. The Apostle Paul said this in Romans 3, that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. That's the whole point of the first three chapters of Romans, that we all stand guilty before God. We're all guilty. There's none righteous, no, not one. He also taught that we are all by nature objects of God's wrath. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. But you might ask, does God really have enemies? Someone here might be sitting still thinking, no, no, I don't really believe in that kind of a God. You know, I've put God in his box, and this is how I think God is, and I think God doesn't have enemies. Well, here's how the Holy Spirit, by the way, who is part of the Godhead, here's how the Holy Spirit put it when he wrote the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 10, verse 26, it's on the screen. It says this, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversary. My friends, do you understand that God does have enemies? He does have enemies, and did you notice who they are according to Hebrews chapter 10? They are the ones who continually and willfully rebel and sin against him. They are the ones who refuse to repent of their sins. And the Apostle James put it this way in James 4, verse 4, again on the screen. The words of the living God say this, You adulterous people! Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So do you understand God has enemies? And according to James 4, verse 4, who are God's enemies? God's enemies are the ones who befriend the world. And by the way, the world there is not referring to planet Earth, okay? Okay. We're not talking about the tree huggers or the environmentalists who think the world's going to be destroyed, you know, as the world's temperatures go up. We're not that's not what this is talking about, okay? The world here is the cosmos, all right? The cosmos being the the way that unbelievers think, the the way the believer unbelievers act. What they do, the way they think, what they say, where they go. Their philosophies and their beliefs is the world. So friend, I ask you, are you one of God's enemies? Have you befriended the world? Have you willingly and continually rejected God and, and His ways and His laws? Then you're one of His enemies. And if so, hear Paul's words to God's enemies in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen closely, because these are God's words to His enemies. And he says here in 2 Corinthians 5, we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God in other words the idea of reconciliation is no longer be his enemy but be his friend be at one how is that possible well verse 21 says for our sake he that's God the father made his son him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God my friend That is the only way that you can stop being God's enemy. Until you do that, you will always be his enemy. Because by birth and by nature and by choice, we are God's enemies. And according to the Bible, we've all been God's enemies. And so the question is whether you have been reconciled to God the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. That's the question. Have you done that? you have my friend then you are his people you are his friend if not then you are his enemy take heed because judgment day is coming